Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. If you love the music and atmosphere of the 1970s and blues and a little country thrown in for good measure, you're going to love Michael Parker's new novel, I Am the Light of This World, a gripping story that follows protagonist Earl, who serves over 40 years in a Texas prison for a heinous crime he didn't commit, then, upon his release, has to navigate a world that he can barely comprehend. In the last segment, Grammy Award-winning archivist and curator at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, Jeff Place, joins the podcast to talk about Lead Belly, who figures large in Michael Parker's novel. But first, we welcome Michael Parker to Rock is Lit. Michael Parker is the author of eight novels and three collections of short stories. He is a three-time winner of the O. Henry Award for Short Fiction and winner of the 2020 Thomas Wolfe Award. Michael has taught for almost 30 years in the MFA program at UNCG. He lives and writes in Austin, Texas. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Oh, thank you for having me. So. Earl, the main character in your novel, I Am the Light of This World, has pretty eclectic taste in music, from Lead Belly to Joni Mitchell to Bob Dylan to Hank Williams and on and on. So I'm curious to find out if your musical interests are just as eclectic. Let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought? Uh, Sly and the Family Stone's Greatest Hits. Oh, very nice. When was this? 1969. I was 10 years old. All right. What was your most memorable live music experience? Oh, my God, there have been so many. <laughs> um, you know, one of the best shows I have ever been to was My Morning Jacket at Cat's Cradle. And for some reason, there were about 20 of us. And they just played and played and played. And it was right after, I think, Tennessee Fire came out, maybe. Okay. So it was very early on, and they were very young and, um, you know, very common. I mean, they just wanted people to love them. And yeah. they just played for for a couple hours, and then they took a bunch of encores and then came out and talked to us all. And it was just – it was a really beautiful show. Were there a lot of people there? No, there were like 20 of us. You formed the bulk of the audience, you and your crowd? Yeah, and actually they recorded um, a live version um, that came out – and called uh, Live at Cat's Cradle. Mm. And I, I've listened to it several times, and I can hear myself whooping <laughs> and hollering. It was so embarrassing because, you know, you do that thing with a woo-woo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then you hear yourself, and you're, like, mortified. Well, there's your, your musical career right there. You're on vinyl. Exactly. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be, and what's one question you would ask? Huh, that is a hard one. I think that I would interview... Mick Taylor, who I talk about a lot in the novel, and I would ask him not why he left the Stones, but how he could stand to stay <laughs> with Mick and Keith for all of those years. Because I really feel like he was, after, after he left, to my estimation, the band really went downhill. Now, he has a great guitar solo on that song, Winter, on Goat's Head Soup. I love that song. And I love the song, Time Waits for No One. You mentioned that song in your novel, and in fact, when you mentioned it, you talked about his solo, and it was like climbing a ladder and then coming down. And when I read that, I thought that is, that's exactly what it sounds like. That's the experience that you have when yeah. you listen to that song. It goes up and up and up and then down. I always had a theory. Mick Taylor, great guitar player, but he, never, he didn't have the Rolling Stones gnarly look. He didn't kind of fit in with their gnarliness. 
Yeah, I remember when he le- when he, when he left. Uh, Jagger purportedly said, "You know what's a problem? We can get a six foot tall blonde guitar player anywhere." Oh gosh, <laughs> which is kind of horrendous. But I mean, mm-hmm. that sort of suggests the way in which they um, did not respect understand, him. Yeah, and respect his talent. What's on your playlist now? Oh my gosh, I've just been listening to a lot of different stuff. So. Um, Justice Prophet, who's a, a singer from uh, singer songwriter from LA, who plays a lot with this woman Jason, um, this Filipino artist. I really like. Mm. Um, I've been listening to the new Why Bonnie record. Um, okay, and they're actually from Austin. Or for, they're actually from East Texas, but they live in Austin now. Um, also, a band from Asheville that sort of. Uh, very similar to Why Bonnie, and they're called Wednesday. So Why Bonnie and Wednesday sort of fit into the same genre, which my friend Beto, not that Beto, but another <laughs> Beto, have um, have termed um, twang gays because they're really both in the shoegaze, and we also like country music. So mm-hmm. these two bands are kind of twangy and shoegazy at the same time. Okay. Um, yesterday I was just over in um, Lockhart, Texas, which is – place where one goes to get barbecue and um i bought a a george jones record from like 1957 Mm -hmm. so i've been listening to that today um also this woman named helena deland she's um canadian and she's a really really beautiful beautiful singer beautiful songwriter you're in Texas, and I, I have to deviate here. You mentioned barbecue, and you and I are both from North Carolina, and you know how we are in Eastern North Carolina about our barbecue. So you got to tell me, does it compare? Uh, it's completely different, and no, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> it does not compare. I'm a convert to Texas barbecue. I mean, frankly, when I moved here, I was kind of a vegetarian, but um, I mm-hmm. made an exception for brisket. Uh, and then my daughter, who's who's actually here now, is super hardcore North Carolina barbecue person. My girl. Yeah. She's, I mean, she, I think she could have designed a vinegar (laughs) tomato t-shirt because she's always been at the forefront of that conversation. And I'm from Clinton and my father's from Tarboro. And so. Well, there you go. Yeah. Every, every time someone died, we had barbecue. So, Mm -hmm. you know, of course it it tastes slightly of death, but that's okay. (laughs) No, I love that vinegar-based sauce that we have in eastern North Carolina. Yes, love it. All right, one more question on this round. Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? Uh, Maybe The Replacements. All right. That's an interesting choice. Yeah. I love The Replacements, and I think it would be impossible to put them in a book. But, I mean, I I did read that um, biography of The Replacements, which is very, very long and very detailed, but you know, I, I think they accounted for every drink they ever had, which is explains why it's seven hundred and fifty pages long. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. On that note, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Michael Parker. And make sure you stick around to hear Jeff Place talk about lead belly in the last segment. Back in a moment. This is Michael Parker, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. And we're back with Michael Parker, whose novel, I Am the Light of This World, is the focus of this episode. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned in very basic terms some of the highlights of the novel. Can you fill in the gaps for people who may not be familiar with it? What is the main plot of the story? Yeah, it's the story of this kid, Earl, who's from East Texas. And, um, well, you said he had eclectic taste in music, but he's a little dreamy. He's kind of shoegazy, actually. He's sort of gazing at, at the at the at the ground all the time, and sort of looking to see what he can find. But he's, um, you know, like a lot of us, he's his struggle is to sort of remain in the world and to establish some sort of contact with 
external reality and also honor his inner life. Um, and I think that is, you know, central conflict to a lot of novels, but certainly this one because, you know, it, it gets him in trouble where people really think he should show up and be aware and he's not really capable of doing that. Um, so he gets involved with this woman named Tina and they go up to Austin and this is the early 70s and Austin's kind of wide open as it is still in a very different way. Now it's tech bros and not hippies, but um, <laughs> it still has its share of excess. And, um, you know, they get going and things happen. They get separated and um, then some, I don't want to give too much away, but right, he's a witness to some, as you said, something very heinous and he doesn't participate, but he's present and he is convicted of murder and spends 40 years in prison. And I don't talk at all about prison, really, very, very little, because, A, it's very static, you know, which is not really good for novels. Yeah. Because really the same thing happens every day, and as I understand it, in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I just, you know, what interested me was what happens before he goes in and what happens after he gets out. You've said... All my novels have come from images I've not been able to get out of my head. I don't begin with ideas. I begin with a vision, a snippet of movement in a landscape, and from that point comes characters and the desires of the characters, which constitute eventually, with much rewriting, the plot. What was the image that came to you that inspired this book? I can't say it came to me because that's something I actually saw, and I swim all the time, um, every day, pretty much. And, And swimming, as you know, is a big part of this book. Yes, it is. And, um, I was swimming one day in the in the neighborhood pool, which is at, the one great thing of, of many things I love about Austin is that you can swim outdoors year round. Um, and I was swimming in the winter, and there's no one in the pool. It's a near it's a pool near near my house, and it's heated. So in the in the middle of the winter, if it's I don't know cold for Austin, it's like. 45 degrees it's 45 degrees and the water is maybe in the 70s so it steams it you know this it's mm-hmm. just steamy so i was swimming and i saw three band-aids <laughs> on the bottom of the pool oh my gosh okay that shows up in yeah, the yeah exactly so i i think i don't know I, I had this guy thinking about the band-aid at the bottom of the pool and what it represented and how it looked how the you know the the Band-Aid was wavy and oversized and the way that things right. looked refracted through the water. And I didn't have the smoking, the mistiness of it because, you know, he was in East Texas where there there wouldn't be that. There wouldn't be swimming pools. He, he was swimming in, um, you know, rivers and, and stuff. But, um, yeah. but that was kind of the, you know, the beginning image of the book. And then a lot of other images came as I sort of developed his sensibility from that image and from the way that he reacts to it and other things that he sees. That's really interesting that you could develop this whole other world just from seeing these band-aids at the bottom of a pool. Yeah. It's, um, I guess you got to pay attention, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of hard to do sometimes because there's so much other stuff in the world, but I think I I love big ideas. Uh, I'm interested in them, but to me, Fiction is not really about huge ideas. It's about the ways in which ideas arise out of image and observation and the things one sees out of the corner of their eye are much more um, resonant than, you know, this large uh, dystopian vision that that people seem to be very interested in. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm yeah. I'm a sucker for that sometimes too. Let's talk about time and setting. So the story begins in 1973 in East Texas when Earl is 17. Why did you decide to set the story in that time and place? He's roughly the same age that I am. I'm 63. So I wanted to write about someone who came out into the world in, say, 2018. And I wanted him to be roughly the same age as me because I wanted his youth to be kind of what my youth was, you know, and and to sort of think about the ways in which the world has changed since I was a kid and um, just, you know, the ways in which we used to hear music and the way we used to 
um, appreciate it and, yeah. and how we always listen to the radio and in Eastern North Carolina, the big, the sort of big cultural bellwether was when WQDR arrived mm-hmm. in Raleigh and uh, we could listen to FM radio because before then it was, you know, these AM stations, AM radio right. stations that you get. Yeah. That you could get from like Chicago, like WLS yeah. out of Chicago and WOWO out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, um, and those would, you know, carry all the hits. I mean, I feel like I've written about the seventies before I was, I was a little hesitant to do it because I think I've covered that, but I did want to write about someone who was roughly my age and who was experiencing the same kind of, you know, would have to acclimate in the same way as I would if I had gone away for 40 years. I think that time period too, the early seventies is is such an interesting time. It's, you have that shift from peace and love of the sixties to this more apolitical hedonistic time. Earl is navigating that world before he ever goes into prison and all the music and all of, of what's going on is going on around him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, there's a weird thing that happened like in 1973 or maybe around there where all this peace, love and, you know, love your brother thing it just kind of went away and the people started to get strung out and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and drugs were no, no longer like recreational. I mean, they were yeah. for some some people, but things turned pretty ugly for for a lot of us. And um, so, and and that kind of divide and that kind of shift was something I was interested in writing about. Um, and it didn't happen for everybody. I mean, a lot of people were able to navigate those um, that that kind of shift easily. And with impunity, but not everyone made it. So I'm interested in the title of the novel. It comes from the song, I Am the Light of This World, by blues and gospel singer Reverend Gary Davis, a.k.a. Blind Gary Davis. And the lyrics of the chorus are, just as long as I'm in this world, I am the light of this world. So let's hear a clip of the song. I am the light of this world, just as long as I'm in this world, I am the light this world just as long as I'm in this world I am the light of this world oh you don't believe in Jesus and not a word he say when it come all the way down to leather's grave and raising from what does this song mean to you and what made you choose it as the title of the novel well first of all I, I first knew that song through a cover by um, Yorma Kalkonen, who was a guitar player for the Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. He had a re- really beautiful solo album that came out, I think, in like 1972 called Qua, Q-U-A-H. I'm, wrong, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong about the dates because I, I get things mixed up like this. But um, And he covered that song, and that was my first exposure to it. And I didn't, I didn't learn until much later that it was a Reverend Gary Davis tune and that Reverend Gary Davis was born in South Carolina, but was a big player in the, um, in the Piedmont yeah, blues. In Durham. Yeah, exactly. In Durham. So, so that was a wonderful coincidence. And, you know, obviously he was like, he was big in the blues and then, so, you know, living the life and, and then he became a preacher. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of his music had a kind of spiritual, um, as in, you know, the spiritual as genre, but also spiritual um, in terms of its spirit um, bent to it. I don't know. I feel like uh, Earl heard that and thought, well, that's a song I can relate to because in some ways he thinks and feels like he is a, in, in the center of things. Yeah. And, you know, and, and is, um, it's kind of burning brightly and understands the world sort of, not in a selfish way, but in, in re- like he's a very good listener, and he's and he's also kind of you know charming, but he's also neglected. I mean, he's been his parents don't care much for him, and they they didn't invest much in in his education or anything in his upbringing, and so he's been neglected, and so he's just trying to survive. So I feel like that. That refrain, I am the light of this world, and also the next line is tell everybody in this, or the first line is tell everybody in this world, I am the light of this world. And so thinking tell everybody in this world, because I think he needs to make his 
claim in the world. He just is he's he's having a hard time, you know, making making his way in the world, and that's just the way he has of putting himself in the center. I see him as a very innocent kind of person. He doesn't have that self-centeredness. It takes on a much deeper meaning. And and then he says at this party in Austin, somebody asked him what he's good at, and he says he was the light of the world. It's interesting how that resonates throughout. Going back to Reverend Gary Davis, he experienced a career rebirth as part of the American folk music revival that peaked during the 60s, and he influenced Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead. Maybe a lot of people don't know who he is now, but he made his mark and definitely influenced a lot of artists that we all know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he. it's interesting that Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee are the people that you think of and we think of Durham and that mm-hmm. Piedmont Blues, but he was every bit as instrumental. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, the, the the line, I am the light of this world, comes from scripture. Earl is definitely not aware that that line comes from the Bible. And, um, you know, because he's not a religious person, his family's not religious, but there is some sort of pure, I agree, he's, he has a kind of purity um, and a kind of innocence that would, you know, had he read the Bible, he, you know, he would have responded to that line. Well, he had a different kind of a Bible that we'll talk about in a minute, but in between now and then. In light of the premise of this podcast, The Convergence of Fiction and Music, I was really interested in this quote from you I came across that's related to that very idea. You said, books are made of other books, but they are also cobbled together from other elements, other influences. So tell me about your relationship with music on a personal level and as an artist. Um, Music is everything to me. I am distrustful of people who don't listen to music. I mean, I like them. They're fine, but I don't Oh, know. hell, I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand them. I don't really understand how you can go through the day and not listen to music. I mean, that sure, there's certain times when you just don't. You're not feeling it, and you have to take a break or something. But um, I've always been, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I can remember I was born in Solar City, and... One of my earliest memories is my brother taking me to the public pool and hearing, I think it was um, She Loves You, the, the Beatles song. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. You think you've lost your love when I saw her yesterday, yeah. I felt alive, and I remember the feeling of feeling alive. I mean, for me, what interests me in literature is the same thing that interests me in music, which is rhythm. You know, as it pertains to literature, it's not only sentence rhythm, which is hugely important, as is syntax and the way in which the reader or the writer understands the world via sentence rhythm and syntax, because it's, you know, you can point out anything in a sentence, but unless it it sings what it says, it doesn't mean anything. And then there's also like a formal rhythm, like a larger way in which the the book is structured and put together or a poem and the way in which that makes a statement obviously i'm more interested in that than just outright making statements as i said earlier that i'm not you know i love ideas but i think they should arise out of things as william carlos williams said the other thing is obviously you know music expresses the things that you cannot which is what literature does as well although i think in literature there's always something that's that you can't say like you just can't get it on the page whereas you know in a in a guitar solo or in a bridge or in the lyrics of certain songs or or even in the production there's there's something that you just can never articulate but it's you don't need to yeah there's that emotion with music exactly there's the immediacy of it too you can get in a three-minute song what would take you 300 pages of a novel to get through. Yeah, and that way I'm really envious of musicians. Having said that, I don't think it's like super easy to write a, a three-minute pop song no. that, that lasts forever. I, 
I, I feel like it's every bit as difficult as writing a 300-page novel right. in some ways. The song choices in the book are perfect for the scenes they're in. They always augment the story or add some other layer to a scene. How did you go about choosing songs? A lot of it was just the way in which you write. You know, you throw in, you're throwing anything at the wall and hoping it sticks. So there were song choices that were there originally that were no longer there because of that very reason, because I realized that they didn't actually fit um, or complement the dramatic action. Yeah. Um, so I had to go back and change them. But for instance, you know, the, the, the key scene in the novel, um, Kimmy Shelter's playing. such a loaded song and in some ways i thought oh, i don't know it seems so obvious and it's uh, it's so you know um always heralded as a as a sort of death knell of the 60s and um and it's so anthemic and uh and it also is used in movies i mean martin scorsese's used it several times because it's a great freaking song exactly right yeah it's probably the best i mean i think it's right up there with my top two or three songs it's so haunting so that I just couldn't resist, you know, using it in that one scene because the scene is so uh, tense with sex and violence. And those are the lyrics, rape, murder, the scene that it's used in. I mean, we won't talk too much about that, but it, it is, I didn't feel like it was heavy handed or whatever it was you said. I, I thought it fit perfectly. And I'm, I'm also flashing on the crystal ship by the doors playing when, Earl is snorting crystal meth <laughs> and coke. And and then there's this scene that's, this is so haunting. He's in a, a grocery store in the wee hours of the morning and Joni Mitchell's, the same situation is playing. And, and those lyrics are, send me somebody who's strong and somewhat sincere with the millions of the lost and lonely ones I called out to be released. And he just starts to cry. At this point, he's released from prison, but you know, the world that he has entered back into is vastly different from the one that he left. It's a really poignant moment. That was a great choice, and I love that song. But I also love that he admits, "Well, I like this song, but I couldn't, I couldn't say that back when I was young. I couldn't say I like Joni Mitchell." Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to hear that the, these song choices worked. Um, and I have to say yes. that I never thought of the connection between Crystal Ship and and what Earl is doing at, this, at the time. I mean, these are the sort of happy accidents that readers can tell me, and I'm like, "Oh, I." Had, I had no idea. I just was sort of, you know, play, that was the song that I was playing. Also, I really, really love that song, I have to say. I mean, I had sisters, and they were forever listening to Blue and Ladies of the Canyon. and um, Court and Spark, which is where that song comes from. Yeah, Court and Spark. It was a beautiful, God, what a beautiful record that is. I know, and I've worn it out. It's so insanely, yeah, it's so beautiful the way those songs run into each other. And it's all, I mean, the sequencing of mm -hmm. those songs. Um, just ingenious, and uh, and I would listen to things sort of um, on the sly, on the down low, <laughs> like right when when I was with my sisters. Like for another really terrific album, I think that you're now allowed to say these things with total impunity because there's no people don't break it down. I mean, you know, kids these days they don't have any kind of embarrassment about liking things like this, but. Um, Carol King's Tapestry is a beautiful record. Yes. Talking about the gimme shelter scene, that is haunting. 
But the part in the novel where we find out one character was singing Walk Away by the James Gang in the shower after something horrendous happens, now that's haunting. That's just the mark of a psychopath. Yeah, 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 that's a particularly... I mean, that's another one that didn't come originally. Like, um, you know, I had these songs and a lot of them in my head and when I was writing the book and then, you know, I had a sort of rotate, I had a larger playlist and, mm-hmm. you know, you had to win. A, it's just like making a, I mean, I don't do, I, I don't even know how to do Spotify. I just, uh, I've never <laughs> done it, but I do still make CDs for people. Oh, you do the mixtapes. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still do that. When you're making one of those and you just end up discarding half of what you put on there. I'm like, that isn't, that song doesn't really work. And so that was the way that worked. But yeah, that song, it's a really terrific song, but in mm-hmm. that context, I don't think I'll ever be able to listen to it again. You know, it's like setting a horror movie at Christmas. That song is is great, and it's just this innocent song, but in that context, it's just really disturbing. It is very disturbing, yeah. And I have older siblings. I'm the youngest of four, and the next to the youngest is 10 years older than I. And I got most of my musical taste from him. And I remember vividly as a little girl being sick in bed with something, the flu or something, And he knew I loved that song, and he would play that over and over for me. So now, thank you very much. You've just ruined that memory. (sighs) I'm so sorry. I wish I could take that away, but I don't know how to do that. No, it's done. It's done. Yeah. (laughs) And also, when Earl is, is playing the zombie's greatest hits for Alana, he is kind of, in effect, a zombie at that point. The songs from the greatest hits that you name, it's like, yep. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. And I love that you threw in Led Zeppelin No Quarter when those girls are fighting over the pizza guy. I appreciated that. Uh, yeah, that song seems to go on forever. I think, you know, I had a friend who lived in my neighborhood, and that there was this. Uh, we would go for walks. This was in, when I lived in Greensboro, and there was this these people that lived down on the corner uh, right across from this park, and they would every Sunday afternoon they would just play classic rock all afternoon and, and sit on their porch and drink beer. And we went for a walk one time and they were playing No Quarter. And then we, I swear to God, we were gone for like an hour. We came back and No Quarter was still playing. And he said, that song just gets longer and longer as, as time gets, as w- the farther we get away from when it was written. I think the, uh, the live version from The Song Remains the Same is better than the album version. I like that better. Uh, really? I, mean, I don't think I've listened. I, I, rem- I remember seeing that like at Moorhead Planetarium or something that, Mm, that, the movie? Yeah, the movie. Yeah. There are song lyrics in your novel. How did you get permission for that? Or did you just say, screw it, I've only used a line or two? Yeah, you can use under two lines. Anything under two lines is... So if you go over that, they, they'll they like cut this back, you know. I mean, I did have places where... Also, the thing about Give Me Shelter is that it's cut up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not quoting... If I had quoted like four lines of it together, there would be an issue. But I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this on on the radio, but I'm not <laughs> so sure they're paying attention to like, I'm not sure anybody's reading my books trying to think, oh my hey. God. I mean, you know, with that in mind, like mm. there's no, I don't think um, Robert Plant's lawyer is reading all these books trying to find someone violating copyright. I mean, the the copy editor was um, Chris Stamey from the DBs, you know, the the D, the band, the DBs, and, and yeah, the yeah. producer. He's and he's a he copy editor. He would know. Yeah, so he he was he probably has a particular propensity for that. I have to say that once I found out he was a copy editor, I was mortified because the DBs were a big band for me, and I really loved, and I loved his work. Post DBs, I mean, I think he's just a really fine musician. I don't know him. I, I think I met him once, but you know, I wouldn't 
um, that we're not friends or anything, but um, I really worship him from afar. And I was such a fanboy that I was like, oh my God, I have to go back through and make sure that all these songs are, you know, exactly what I say they are. Um, I got very self-conscious all of a sudden because he has such good musical taste, but. Yeah, no pressure there. Yeah. Let's talk about Lead Belly. The folk and blues musician Lead Belly is like Earl's spiritual father. We were talking about religion a little bit earlier. He really is like Earl's spiritual father. Earl's real father is an absentee dad. So the book, Lead Belly, His Life and Times, is like Earl's Bible. He carries it with him darn near everywhere before he goes to prison. That's not a real book, though, is it? Uh, Actually, it is. Is it? Okay, I was Googling that. I didn't find it. You know, I, I don't know if we got the title. I mean, there, there's some variations on the title, but um, I mean, that is very autobiographical. I read that. I read a biography of, of Lib Billy when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I just was obsessed with that book and I was obsessed with Lib Billy. Yeah. And I didn't really know his music. I didn't really know anything about him. I just knew that he was this great musician. I mean, I'd heard, I, of course, I went and. Um, I didn't Google it. <laughs> no, I think you didn't. I found some, I found some record um, of my brother's that uh, that was one of Folkways Records, maybe from the Smithsonian collection. Mm-hmm. You know, they had those beautifully candy striped covers in, in the back. And um, so they had a Lead Belly record, and I listened to it. And um, so I was really obsessed with that book. And also, uh, for years, I drove back and forth from Austin to, uh, to Greensboro because I was living in both places. And um, I would go through, um, I was cut up through East Texas, which is one of the reasons why the book is set there. I'd never answer your question, but <laughs> the reason why I set there is because I kind of know that part of Texas a little bit and no one else really is, unless you're from that part of Texas, there's really no reason to go up there. And, um, and, uh, it reminds me very much of Eastern North Carolina where I grew up. I mean, it's the same kind of terrain and really, and, yeah, East Texas is very much the South as opposed to Central Texas where I am or West Texas or Houston, which is more like is really Louisiana and um, and then North Texas, which is Oklahoma. But don't tell the North Texans that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I was really obsessed with that book. And, and then I um, was I was I was looking at a map and I was in Shreveport, I stopped for gas. And I saw that this road went from. Right, it cut right down from Shreveport or from Bozier City, and went through this town, Mooringsport, which is where Lead Belly was born, mm-hmm. and where he was buried. And so I, w- I went to his grave, and um, oh wow, took a bunch of pictures. And um, this was a good four or five years before I wrote this book, and so that was very much. I still have the pictures, um, uh, the photos that I, I, I saved, and. Um, Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was really powerful because I was just so obsessed with him. Would you shake your head? you get up. you said, Lord, I can't eat and I can't sleep. What's the matter? The blues got you. want to talk to you. Tell what you got to tell them. Good morning, blues. Good idea you do. All right, so back to Lead Belly, born on a plantation in Louisiana, and he actually did live in Bowie County, Texas, where part of the book is is set. He moved there when he was five years old. His family settled there. So let's talk a little bit more about why Earl is so drawn to him. How do they complement each other? Where's that convergence? You know, I think he's so, such a mysterious person. I mean, he had this incredible musical ability and yet he was really not a very nice person he did some he did some time he did he killed a man Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then he got out and he killed another man yeah you know there's that he 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 was rough he was a rough customer and as as arthur the lawyer says to earl not you know when he saw when he asked him what book he was reading he told him and arthur said yeah, not maybe not the greatest role model for you, <laughs> um, because at that point Earl's already been arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah, it's a it's a musical uh, ability and the, and the um, and the way in which he was able to. I mean, it's very much like 
Earl's capacity to be there and also elsewhere. Yes, yeah. Which coincidentally was the title of the book originally. Oh, it wasn't really? I am the light of the world. Yeah, it was also elsewhere. Huh. Um, but that's not a very sexy title. Um, <laughs> so I mean, as and it's kind of nail on the head as well. But you know, so I, I don't think Earl's is very accustomed to knowing people that are that contradictory. Mm, mm-hmm. Because it, like his mother is just on the phone all the time and his brothers are just um juvenile delinquents there's no i mean obviously if he if he really bothered to get to know them he would see other sides but for him everyone is just sort of you know black and white and he's not and i think he reads into lead belly's music and into his life this kind of incredibly tender soul um but also, it's sort of like the Robert Johnson thing when he keeps talking about love in vain. Yes, he's really obsessed with that song, and and he's obsessed with the lines about um, um, the blue light was my baby, the red light was my mind. Yeah, yeah, from Love in Vain. When the train and left the station, was two lights on behind. Well, the blue light was my blue, and the red light was my mind. All my love's in vain. Yeah, it's just a gorgeous image, like right out of Isaac Babel, you know, or uh, or Dennis Johnson. I mean, but but way before them, and and original, and not before Isaac Babel. But anyway, so. He sees him as a kind of visionary and um and also as someone who you shouldn't really fuck right, with. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You think he's he's kind of romanticized Lead Belly? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think he romanticizes a lot of things. I mean, you know, he's he's far from a obviously he's far from a perfect character. You know, he, he's he's deeply flawed in the way that he doesn't understand things in the way in which he willfully doesn't understand things. So there is this innocence to him, but there's also, yes. you know, I don't want him to be just kind of like moony kid who just goes along to get along and ends up in the shit. Going in another direction here and talking about music, Hank Williams, I'm so lonesome like a cry. He calls the unofficial anthem of loneliness, and he really gets that from his dad. His dad gave him a transistor radio when he was a kid, introduced him to this song, taught him the lyrics, and really kind of gave him music. That's probably the greatest gift he ever gave him because he just sort of was not there after that. Yeah. I mean, Hank Williams is another one. You sort of think of him as, I don't know, just a kind of cut, every song's cut from the same cloth, but he was an incredible visionary. I mean, there's some lines in some of his songs that are just gorgeous and so rich and so deeply imagistic. He was absolutely brilliant, yeah, and so tragic. Oh, yes. 29 years old. I mean, it's like Keats, you know. he's He left behind such a rich and um, accomplished body of work or like Rimbaud who, who stopped writing when he was what 23 or 4 or something I mean I think he was even younger than that and yet we're still reading him today mm-hmm. and we're still listening to Hank Williams Hear that lonesome whippoorwill He sounds too blue to fly the midnight train is whining low. I'm so lonesome I could cry. I've never I was I was slow to the CD thing, but my sister got me 24 of Hank Williams' greatest hits, and and I went. I was like, oh hell, now I have to go buy a CD player. I have his maybe the same CD. I don't know the greatest hits, whatever it's called. And I've played and played that. I think he was just brilliant. Yeah, genius. I have to tell you, everybody in Earl's circle, starting with his family, says he's a little odd. And one of his brothers used to sing Ground Control to Major Tom every time Earl came into the room. So <laughs> to tell you, when when we meet the character Tom, 
later and he's wearing a David Bowie t-shirt, I thought Michael Parker's fucking brilliant. Uh, once again, I didn't, I did not make the connection. I wasn't intentional. I mean, once again, I have to thank you for bringing <laughs> that to my attention because I did, this is, these are the happy accidents of, of, you know, art, making art that you're, you're, on some level, maybe you're aware, but not, you know, I'm not sitting around connecting the dots. And I leave that up to you, and that, and you did a great job. It's a great book, Michael. I loved it. Well, that's a wonderful. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Um, it's just a, obviously a dream for an author to hear that from an, such an intelligent reader as well. You read, obviously, you read it very carefully, and I really appreciate that. And and you schooled me. I've learned more from this conversation than I than I did from writing the right rewriting the book fifteen thousand times. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, I'm glad you wrote it, and I'm glad it fell into my hands. I'm I'm a huge fan now. I really loved it. Well, thank you so much. What have you got going on now that you want listeners to know about? Um, you know, I'm writing some poems. I haven't. I'm not a poet. I haven't written poems in thirty five, forty years, and um, I find myself. In between things, I wrote some stories after this book, the, after I turned the draft in, and I am just don't even, I'm not in a place to even look at them, you know, I'm right. just sort of letting them sit around and, you know, get seasoned, like wood piles and stuff. But, uh, yeah, the poems are, are such a challenge. I don't know anything really about, <laughs> I read poems all the time, but I don't really know how to write yeah. one, so it's wonderfully um both comforting and, and horrifying <laughs> to sit down every day to do uh-huh. it, you know, because you know that there's a, the stakes are very low for me. I'm not, I'm not going to try to publish them, but I'm going to try to learn it as much as I can from the process. Well, that's great. Michael, thanks so much for being on the show. Keep up with Michael Parker at his website, michaelfparker.com, and pick up a copy of I Am the Light of This World at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by lead belly expert Jeff Place. Go ahead and do it now, you got to do it. Uh, Jeff Place. I'm the uh, senior archivist and curator of the Smithsonian Folklife Collections. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Jeff Place to the show. Jeff has been at the Smithsonian Music Center's Ralph Rensler Folklife Archives and Collections since 1988. He holds an MLS from the University of Maryland and specializes in sound archives. He oversees the cataloging of the center's collections and has been involved in the compilation of over 60 CDs of American music for Smithsonian Folkways recordings, including the Lead Belly Legacy series, Lead Belly Sings for Children, the Pete Seeger American Favorite Ballad series, and Woody Guthrie's The Ash Recordings. Jeff has been nominated for eight Grammy Awards and 12 Indie Awards, winning three Grammys and six Indies. He was one of the producers and writers of the acclaimed 1997 edition of the Anthology of American Folk Music and the Best of Broadside, 1962 to 1988. He has served on the curatorial team for a number of exhibitions, including the Traveling Woody Guthrie exhibition, This Land is Your Land. In 2003, he co-curated the Smithsonian Folklife Festival program on Appalachian culture. In 2012, he produced and co-authored the publication and CD box set Woody at 100 and the Lead Belly, the Smithsonian Collection in 2014, followed by Pete Seeger of the Smithsonian Collection and Jazz Fest in 2019. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are quite the expert on Lead Belly. So tell me, where and how did your interest in him begin? Well, you know, my, my parents were folkies when I was growing up in the 60s in Virginia. And, you know, and they had a lot of old compilation things and they they had a couple of lead belly records but i got into rock and roll you know back when i was in high school playing music and stuff and i was hearing lots of songs that i didn't know were lead belly songs like midnight special and, yes and and gallus pole which you know led zeppelin led zeppelin called hangman um there were others you know that were out there floating around and then later i kind of 
you know, I was running a record store in D.C., and I we had a good folk section, so I used to listen to a lot of folk stuff. This was in the 70s. and um, But, you know, in uh, basically, I realized after a while I, I couldn't really make a career of working at a record store, so I um, went to grad school and got a degree in sound archives. And, and the job at the Smithsonian got hired Christmas Eve of 87, and right when Folkways Records was acquired by the Smithsonian. And so Tony Seeger, Pete Seeger's nephew, and I were the two guys they hired. And I got to be put in this room, this giant room full of boxes and recordings, and it really wasn't very organized. And I went through that room, and I had to kind of make sense of it. So over time, I was really worried about the original recordings in the 40s were recorded directly to discs. Some of them were glass, and they were really fragile. Oh, wow. Including all of the lead belly stuff. You could actually hold the glass disc up and see, like, crow's feet in it. You know, if I sneezed, it could break. Um, so I felt really important to copy all that stuff. So I digitized all the lead belly, which was hundreds of, like, discs. That might be 100 discs. I don't remember exactly the amount. Uh, in probably early, mid-90s. And pretty much heard everything he ever recorded for, for Moses Ash, which was probably, in his career, he recorded for a lot of little labels. But the little labels like Columbia, Columbia subsidiary ARC Records, they wanted to market him as a blues guy. But he wasn't a blues guy. You know, he had it was too diverse, and they couldn't deal with some of his other stuff he was doing, like Grey Goose or Sally Walker or children's games. It wasn't their thing. Mo Ash let him play whatever he, you know, whatever he wanted to. So he recorded tons of stuff for Mo Ash. And, you know, and, and in those days, the early days of 78s, you know, a, a 78 would come out, would have three discs that had two songs, you know, one on the front and one in the back. And he, he may have released, like, you know, a handful, you know, six, seven, I don't know, in, in the 40s. So, you know, I had to do the math, right? And there's all these tons and tons of other songs he recorded that, you know, never came out. Um, so I kind of delved into that and... uh you know, started listening to all that and, and dubby and stuff. And, you know, I guess I always have said that I felt like a, a musical archaeologist. You know, I was going through <laughs> and digging things right. out of the past. And, and, you know, I, I needed to kind of publish my findings. And we had the, um, the advantage of having Smithsonian Folkways Records, you know, that we created to carry on the Folkways legacy. And I had a, an outlet to put out these CDs and write, do the research on the songs, the history, and, and put out the booklets and stuff so yeah i, I got kind of definitely you know woody guthrie pete seeger and lead billy those three are like there's so much stuff we had and that those i really got buried in didn't lead belly record a, what about 500 songs probably at least yeah i mean you know the the, the uh, other than folkways which was the ash records at that time and then this records um you know the library of congress the other place he recorded kind of stuff but then he rec like I say, he recorded for a few other people here, but, you know, it was only a handful, of the, you know, here and there. In this episode, we've been talking about Michael Parker's new novel, I Am the Light of This World, in which the protagonist, Earl, kind of looks to Leadbelly as a sort of spiritual father. I mean, he carries around a book about Leadbelly like it's a Bible. So tell me about Lev Belly's background. Who was this guy before he became a legend? Well, you know, he grew up in a... Northwestern Louisiana, in a place called Caddo Lake. And uh, his dad, you know, was fortunate enough to actually was a share, uh, you know, make enough money to actually, he was a sharecropper, make enough money to buy his own land. And so they were there, and, and Led Billy, I think, didn't really want to, growing up, didn't really want to pick cotton and <laughs> work on a farm. He started drifting off, and there was a, Shreveport, Louisiana had a sort of a seedy district called Fannin Street. You know, like like Beale Street or Bourbon Street. Right, and, right. And he would go there and sort of hang out and see all this crazy stuff going on and musicians and whatnot. And, he, he you know, he gravitated toward that, so, you know, learned some piano, barrelhouse piano players and all this stuff going on. And, um, you know, somewhere along the line, he, um, he actually, as he heard a Mexican guitar player playing a 12-string guitar, and he really liked that. He was able to... Uh, take that that 12 string guitar and, and emulate the sound of a barrel house piano that book that rhythm. yeah and that you know that it, but he also like used to go to you know country picnics and he actually played a little accordion when he was young 
and he would play for dances and um, he entertained. He found out he could make money that way. He could make money in, in Shreveport. Um, so it put him on that road, you know. So he also played what mandolin, harmonica, violin. Did he play anything else? A little piano. I was sort of surprised. He said, yeah. I found a, a thing called Big Fat Woman, a piano piece he was playing on one of those discs. Uh, I guess he hung out with those piano players in Treeport, you know, and got got some of that down. But that was, uh, I think it was a thing called Eagle Rock, which is a piano thing. But other than that, you know, it was mainly his, you know, the 12-string guitar. How would you describe his style? Folklorists, like, it turns around now. It was, you know, it's called songsters. They talk about songsters. Mm-hmm. And songsters are people, you know, if you were a guy entertaining on the streets and busking, you know, back in, in his era, 30s, 40s. Um, you know, just like now, like top 40 bands, so people wanted to hear things they knew. They didn't want to be playing yeah. your own original things on the street. So these songsters would get these amazing repertoires of old, like, Tin Pan Alley songs and hymns and, you know, you name it, you know, songs from, like, 100 years of time and that people really liked. And they would learn them all, and they would play them. Now, Leadbelly seemed to must have an amazing memory. He seemed to be able to commit songs to memory after hearing him once. and figured guitar. Wow. Uh, so the songster thing was really what his style was about, and that was the problem with record labels. They didn't know how to deal with that. They wanted to pigeonhole him in some genre, you know? And it wasn't, you know, that's not who he was. So supposedly, Leadbelly once said, when I play, the women would come around to listen, and their men would get angry. Well, in 1918, he fought and killed a man in Dallas and was sentenced to 30 years in the state prison in Huntsville, Texas. What do we know about this and other prison sentences he served? His first one was in 1915, wasn't it? Around then, yeah. I don't have to remember the exact year. But uh, yeah, the first one, you know, and he ended up in jail. And I think uh, that point, he um, he was there and he managed to escape that time and he ended up getting brought back. But he ended up getting out and he ended up in texas pampa um in texas in northeast texas and uh in dekalb texas and uh then he ended up uh i guess it was a, a cousin of his or something uh he got in a fight with and ended up killing him i think that was a manslaughter the first one was was the cousin but later on, yeah the later on one he was coming back from someplace some playing some gig and Somebody tried to jump him, and he fought back, and it was, he, that was manslaughter. And he, that was in Louisiana, so he had okay. prison. His second prison term, he was stabbed in the neck by another inmate and got this really gnarly-looking scar that covered that he covered with a bandana. Does this have anything to do with how he got his name, Leadbelly? What was his real name? Who did he better? But, you know, the thing is that I've always thought, and I, his, fam- his family always, okay, Leadbelly should be two words, not one. It's spelled. Yeah. Um, but back when the Lomaxes, John and Alan Lomax, who worked for the Library of Congress and went out and recording all sorts, they discovered muddy waters and all sorts of people mm-hmm. all over the country. They went and they were recording at prisons because they thought if you went to prisons, you'd find people who'd been like locked up for years and they hadn't been exposed to any modern pop culture or anything and they, their music would be the old music from yeah so they had they did that they went all over texas and all over the south and uh they recorded you know a couple of the guys that led billy was in, in prison with were clear rock and iron head both two words clear rock and iron head yeah and they were recorded okay. by the library of congress and led belly was like the third one and you know, people say maybe it was because he was really like fit and had a you know iron stomach thing, but um, but I, it was a prison nickname. What are some of the musicians that he influenced or inspired? Well, lots. I mean, you know, the thing was about Lead Belly is that if you're in the early '40s, you're, you're, a lot of the folk music you hear is um, was hearing like Burl Ives and you know yeah. Ray Miranda and Richard Dyer Bennett, pretty you know polished uptown stuff and some of the people who came along like pete seeger and others and the people who do the weavers really appreciated lead belly and and and, and even guthrie you know because he he, he kind of fell out of the picture early because of being sick but they really pushed this guy they thought he was just a gem you know absolute gem and they got made sure his work so there's these little records you know like uh, folkways records and stinson records of lead belly that like a lot of folk 
music fans had in their collection. And um, that's, you know, that was there. I'm sure they didn't sell huge amounts of money. You know, Lead Belly died in 1949, so he didn't experience it. But the, the big one was um, 1950. His song, Goodnight Irene, which I guess he had learned from an uncle back when he was a kid um, and modified it. He always modified He took songs new and he modified it and it became a Lead Belly song. Um, that became number one in the United States, and you know, for the Weavers, for the Weavers, for like months, months, and months. That really got him known, and you know, after that, the Weavers covered a lot of other Lead Belly songs. He went on through. I mean, later on, you of course, you know, you had people like Creedence Clearwater doing Midnight mm-hmm. and Zeppelin doing Gallows Pole, and right. um, even up to the, the famous one, more recently, was Nirvana doing yep. In the Pines or Black Girl, which they called Where Did You Sleep Last Night. My girl, my girl, I knew who Lead Belly was, but I had never heard that song until I saw Nirvana unplugged in 1994. So I was really glad that they covered that song because then I went back and listened to Lead Belly's version. So you were talking about the Weavers going to number one with Goodnight Irene after Lead Belly died. He really died penniless, didn't he? Yeah, pretty much. And he was living on East 10th Street in, in New York City, you know, and, and his wife and people would come over and help him out, you know. People were always trying to help him out. I think Mo Asher ran Folkways, was always trying to, you know, give him projects. Um, but, you know, the fame of the last sessions he did was this guy, jazz scholar named Fred Ramsey, scored a reel-to-reel tape deck, like the year they were invented kind of thing. And, and he had it in his apartment and, and he invited Leadbelly over just to spill his, you know, all his repertoire. And that became a four CD set. When the first the first time he didn't have a guitar, so it was all a cappella stuff. It was very different. But huh. by the time he was actually starting to get a little recognition, not much. I mean, you know, he he got sick. He had ALS. Or- yeah, I guess he was in Europe in France playing, and all of a sudden he was having difficulty with you know playing with his hands. Did he die in New York? Yeah. What do you think his legacy is? He's one of those people, you know that. You go back, and I'm sure like 80, 90% of the people we know don't know who he is. But I've always, I always think this concept of links on a chain, you know, and links on a chain or music. He's taking music he heard way back when and doing the lead belly version of it. And then you have like, you know, Lonnie Donegan who kicked off the whole movement in, in England with, with lead belly's Rock Island yeah. Line, which is. The Beatles and Kinks and Stones and all those guys are playing skiffle music when they're kids. And that, that whole, got the whole blues revival in England going, which you know led to all these major bands. And then like other people, Credence and stuff are going on. And they're all further links down the chain. And Kurt Cobain is a further link down the chain. It's probably people now, you know, sampling, you know, Leadbilly into hip hop. I don't know. They're further down, further down the, the line, you know, and it's, it, but the, the people who actually know the links back are, are probably not a lot. So he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, I think. Are, are, there, yep. are there any other accolades that of, of that nature that he's received? Well, the, the um, Rock Island Alliance and the Gra- Grammy Hall of Fame for songs. Okay. Um, that that thing in 88 was pretty amazing. It was like the people who were there. I was there. I gave a talk. Oh, wow. And, uh, Harry Belafonte was there. And, and the one of the evening concerts, um, Bob Santelli, who I co-produced that Lead Belly set with, he was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He organized that thing. He, he put together a concert. And he put together a band that had Allison Krauss and Robert Plant and Los Lobos. Whoa. It was the first time they ever played together. 
And it was after that that kind of they got the idea to do more stuff. That's amazing. Thanks for being on the show, Jeff. Where can folks find out more about you? Well, um, Smithsonian Folkways has a website um, online. You can just Google Smithsonian Folkways. And and we have, um, you know, over the years, the curator working, and we've acquired 20 record labels in addition to Folkways. So we have like something like 40 or 50,000 tracks up there you can listen to samples of. And uh, all the liner notes of all the booklets are there for free for download. So all the Lead Belly, there might be like 15 Lead Belly records that you can get all the, the liner notes and listen to some, some of the samples of it. Um, and that's there, you know, and uh, yeah. Excellent. Thanks again for joining me. And thank you to all the folks listening. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Michael Parker's new novel, I Am the Light of This World, wherever you buy books. And there's she go, Amarillo on the shoulder, piece of paper in her hand. Well, I'm going to ask the Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit!